Welcome to Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. I am William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. I'm quite pleased to welcome to today's episode Professor Sarah Hassani, the newest member of the PC Political Science faculty. Sarah has a joint appointment in both political science and women's studies. She began teaching just last fall and already has established a reputation as an excellent instructor, as our Beyond Your Newsfeed student producer, Giovaya Harris, can attest. Giovaya was a student in one of Professor Hassani's courses last fall. Professor Hassani grew up in Canada, the daughter of Iranian immigrants. She earned her undergraduate degree and master's in political studies from the University of Ottawa. After completing her studies there, Sarah came south to the U.S., to pursue a PhD at New School for Social Research, a PhD which she completed just this last year. Her dissertation, entitled Cloistered Infernos, The Politics of Self-Immolation in the Persian Belt, earned the New School's prestigious Hannah Arendt Award for Best Dissertation in Politics. Professor Asani has already published articles in academic journals, including the Central Asian Survey, and the International Feminist Journal of Politics. It's a great privilege to have Professor Hassani with us today. Professor Saria Hassani, welcome to Beyond Your News Feed. Thank you, Bill, and thank you, Giovea, for having me. It's a true pleasure. Okay, uh, so if I might, I'd like to begin uh, a little bit uh, with some personal background. <laughs> I always like to ask, ask a young political scientists uh, how and when they first became interested in politics. Is there a particular moment or incident that, that really got you uh, into uh, wanting to, to, to learn more about politics? You know, that's a really great and tough question to answer, Bill. Um, I would be hard-pressed to pinpoint an exact moment that brought me to politics. Um, and I think this has probably a lot to do with the fact that, as you said in the answer, Bill, um, I would be hard-pressed to pinpoint an exact moment that brought me to politics. Um, and I think this has probably a lot to do with the fact that, as you said in the opening, you know, I grew up in an immigrant family in Canada. Um, and prior to that, my family had actually fled Iran um, by way of Turkey and Greece as refugees. And so from my very sort of earliest years, I had this keen sense that, you know, life as such is political and politics will find its way into your life one way or another. Right. We, we cannot simply dismiss politics as an arena out there that isn't going to touch us, right? Exactly. Refugees know that, right? When they've, they've <laughs> been touched and, and it can happen to anyone, right? Exactly. We are, you know, borrow a phrase from Aristotle, we're a political species. And so in a lot of ways, we're very much implicated whether we like it or not. Um, and that's really how I've understood my own life. But also, you know, my interest in politics is fueled very much from that understanding. Right. And so as an undergraduate at the University of Ottawa, you were naturally drawn then to the study of politics. Initially, not quite. Um, initially, actually, my first loves, I, well, at least I thought at the time, were journalism and languages. Uh, that's what I was imagining myself pursuing uh, early in undergrad. Um, I quickly learned journalism was not for me um, and that, you know, linguists don't get to sit around all day chatting over coffee and learning languages. Um, and at the time, I'd taken a few upper year seminars in political theory and it really sort of, I found those intriguing. Um, I 
started asking a lot of questions, you know, philosophically, but also politically. Um, and it opened my eyes to a whole new field that um, yeah. I ended up leaning into. What led you to decide to go to the new school for your PhD? That's a fabulous question. Um, you know, it's a program that's well known, at least their politics program is well known for their strengths in political theory. Um, mm -hmm. And increasingly, I think political theory is one of those fields that's being either marginalized or in a certain way, you know, being lost in the greater sense of the humanities, being lost um, mm -hmm. in undergraduates, uh, but also in graduate studies. Um, and so for me, it was one of those unique uh, programs mm -hmm. where I get to spend the bulk of my time working in political theory and learning from some really experienced um, theorists. Right. And there's, of course, the legacy of Hannah Arendt there, right? <laughs> exactly. That was her school. So when she was came to the States anyway. Yes. So... So And so you were really inspired to study political theory as an undergrad, and it was just natural to, to want to continue on and get a PhD. Yeah, I, um, you know, I first fell in love with political theory in French, uh, reading Michel Foucault and various authors. And so for me, it was just sort of a natural transition. I got to really um, express my love of languages through political theory, but also get to know more about you know, the philosophical side of, of politics. Yeah. And here at PC, what, what courses have you taught so far here at PC, and, and how have those gone? Yeah, they've been really fun so far, to be honest with you. Um, we've ta I've taught uh, gender and politics, as well as introduction to women's and gender studies. Uh, and this semester, I'm really excited about this special topics course I'm teaching uh, called Rethinking Political Violence, Gender, Race, and Class. Um, it's a course that, you know, brings a lot of intersectional um, voices into the room. Um, we look at political theory, events, histories, um, and uh, various forms of politics that have unfolded over the last, you know, century. Uh, and we really center, you know, marginalized perspectives and voices to try to see mm -hmm. what those voices can teach us about the larger, um, you know, view of things, the sort of mainstream accounts that might be missing uh, the nuances that are available through other perspectives. And you're teaching that as a special topics course in the poli-sci department. Yes. Yeah, well, that you know, that's the great thing about those special topics courses is that they allow faculty to uh, you know, develop new courses and, and explore things that, they're, that they have been thinking about themselves and, and get students involved. And uh, one of the nice things about teaching at Providence College is there's a lot of flexibility here for that. I know a lot of mm -hmm. schools have a more rigid curriculum, but but we have a lot of flexibility for faculty to develop their own uh, their own courses, and uh, I think that's great for the students. Yeah, it's been a real. Um, it's great for the students. It's also great for the you know instructors. Uh, I think we learn through them and in yeah. our conversations with one another. So I've really found it rewarding. And so, would all your courses be cross listed in poli sci and women's studies, or just? I believe the majority of them will be, but for example, in the fall, I'll be teaching modern political theory. It's a little difficult to cross-list, right. um, as you know. Right. Uh, we will be including, of course, women's voices in that canon as well, but yeah. um, there's just less of them. Yeah, that's one of our established required theory courses, right? Yes. Modern <laughs> political theory. Uh, and uh, and so, and then you will, eventually you'll probably teach Intro to Women's Studies, those kinds of courses in the Women's Studies program. Yes, um, I've right. been teaching the Introduction to Women's and Gender Studies. I hope to develop also a course on gender violence um, in future semesters. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's a great program, too. I'm a big fan of poli-sci, but I remember when the Women's Studies program began back in the 1990s, and that was a great addition to the curriculum. A lot of you know, great uh, faculty members have taught in that program, and it's, uh, I think, served uh, our students quite well over the last few decades so 
I'm glad that you're here to contribute to that program as well. Thank you. I'm glad to be here as well. So let's talk a little bit about your research, uh, and we'll start with your dissertation. It wasn't long ago that you finished it, just this the past year, so so it, I'm sure it's fresh in your mind, <laughs> maybe too fresh. Many yeah. times after doing a dissertation, you want to just forget about it for a while, but it's been uh, almost a year now since you finished, right? So uh, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll 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 make you uh, uh, delve into it. So. Uh, Tell us about the, the basic topic of your dissertation and, and why you got interested in it and, and what's important about this topic. Sure. Um, so it's actually a topic I first came across when I was doing my master's um, back in 2011. Well, it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, but initially, uh, you know, I was actually having a phone conversation with my grandmother back in Tehran, um, my late grandmother, uh, who we've since lost. But uh, she actually brought to my attention an issue that I knew very little about. Um, and this was the really historically elevated um, and disproportionately gendered rates of self-immolation or self-burning, as it's often called in the literature, um, involving young women and girls, uh, often in their late teens and early 20s, um, from predominantly impoverished backgrounds um, in Iran. And uh, this was an issue I knew very little about. It's something she had learned about through her own work in the community. Um, and when she brought it to my intention, I really just had to learn more, you know, um, like many Iranians, I'd had my own personal experiences with this issue, but I had no at all understanding about how widespread it was, um, and, uh, the extent of the need in terms of the community response, um, and the services that were, were required, um, to give you a sense of the scope, like immediately off after getting off the phone with my grandmother that afternoon, I dived into the literature, you know, the academic type, I had to know more. Um, and what I found was really shocking. Um, at the time, the rates that were being estimated in the epidemiological literature was something like four lethal self-immolations a day. Um, and so to me, it was really astounding because, you know, these are women and girls, um, at a time in their life where they have so many years ahead of them, um, so many dreams, so many, um, you know, aspirations. And so why were they taking their lives in such a wrenching way, you know? Um, and for me, it was a real question. And I was deeply dissatisfied with the sort of analysis I was reading in the literature. Yeah, and just to be clear, Sarah, so, and self-immolation really just involves uh, a, a woman, young woman, dumping either kerosene or gasoline or something on herself and then setting it alight, right? Yeah, typically um, it's there's some sort of flammable liquid involved, whether it's kerosene um, or oil. Um, in some cases, you know, leftover oil from a paint job will suffice. Um, and yeah, and then uh, eventually either lighting a match or finding some type of source to light the flame. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very lethal form of self-destructive violence. Very few who commit self-immolation or self-burning actually go on to survive their injuries. I think uh, something like 20 to 25% um, survive, uh, so it's a particularly lethal form of, of self-destructive violence. And not a pleasant death, obviously. No, of course not. Um, a very painful and often drawn-out um, form of death. Uh, many weeks in hospital, mm -hmm. you know, uh, usually those who pass, um, pass as a result of infections, um, things that take place, you know, as a result of often inadequate mm -hmm. hospital facilities, but also just a lack of means. Mm -hmm. and, and, and these women are, are aware of 
what's in store for them when they do this, correct? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Um, so through my conversations um, with survivors, ultimately, which is where the project went, yeah. um, I found that many, you know, could anticipate the results, knew others who'd actually done the same, um, and they were really using it as a form of claims making. Uh, it was a claims making strategy, you know, and a weapon of last resort is how we might describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that brings us to, I guess, a whole different conversation of, of what's really at issue here. Yeah. So, so for for your dissertation, what what precise questions did you want to address, and and what did you really want to find out about this and the and and the and the politics surrounding this? Um, that's a great question. So. Initially, right, I was compelled by what I was finding in the literature, and the accounts that were given were ones that were describing this as a very, you know, um, psychological phenomenon, an issue of perhaps youth um, taking up an impulsive behavior. Um, There was a lot of talk of maladjustment and adjustment disorders, and it was a very sort of dissatisfying account because in a lot of ways it was sort of insinuating that, you know, self-immolation was akin to some type of social media meme that goes viral and that people just take it up in an unthinking way. Yeah, and that, and that it was no different than other kinds of suicide, right? It's exactly. simply a, 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 a personal uh, mental health issue. Yes. Um, and at the same time, I was obviously familiar with um, the political literature on self-immolation. Uh, you know, myself, I'd grown up hearing stories about Saigon in 1963, yeah. um, but also in my lifetime, Mohammed Bouazizi in Tunisia um, and other um, instances in which uh political self-immolations, or at least self-immolations, were received as political acts of protest. And so one of my, you know, foremost questions was, what distinguishes the self-immolations of these young women and girls from those that we read about in the political literature? Um, And why uh, might we classify it as, say, suicide as opposed to political protest? What is the distinction between the two? Where do we draw that line? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the 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 immolations in Vietnam back in the 60s, which I remember uh, the, the news about that, and, and uh, Buddhist monks would immolate themselves, and, it, uh, and, and, they were, and that was always interpreted as political. There was no question that those monks were not committing suicide because they had a mental health problem. It was they were, right. were, they were protesting against really the Saigon regime, the South Vietnamese regime, and, uh, and, and it, was, it was just uh, take taken assumed that that was what it was about but in this case it's not assumed exactly um and so for me that was a puzzling question i I needed to know more and the reality was that the literature contained very little in the way of you know women's actual own voices and there was a lot of quantitative studies being done but very few qualitative studies Um, and so for me that's where the meat of politics actually happens you know how do we make and attribute meaning to things and actions and what counts as a political form of action so i wanted to know more (laughs) and for our listeners what do you mean by a qualitative study so a qualitative study in this case would be one that um, you know engages i did a various i used various methods here but ethnography for example is one where you go and actually engage with the communities involved you live amongst them you spend time having conversations with everyone from survivors to doctors to you know counselors and therapists um, but also conducting interviews with those folks um, spending time sitting down you know parsing the meaning of things what meanings do they attribute mm-hmm. um, and then of course doing the 
long and tedious work of coding all of that data, um, you know, trying to find patterns in what you're hearing, um, trying to make sense of all the various accounts and perspectives, um, and synthesizing those into, you know, some takeaways um, that uh, help us understand more about what's going on. And and where did you go to do these studies? Yeah, so unfortunately, um, at the time, you know, fieldwork in Iran and Afghanistan was rather difficult um, and for me impossible to complete. Um, But in Tajikistan and eastern Uzbekistan, I was able to travel in 2019. um, And there I was able to, of course, meet with survivors face to face. Right. And Tajikistan and Uzbekistan are just north of Iran, right, in, in the Central Asian plain there? Yeah, so they're all sort of bordering one another, um, and uh, there's a sort of a historical Persian Belt region where we might say people, you know, shared in a similar language or some, you know, cross-cultural exchanges happening. Um, and so there I was able to spend time in those communities and actually conduct interviews face-to-face. Um, and then in the case of Iran and Afghanistan, I spent upwards of two years um, trying to connect with folks online um, and doing a lot of, you know, uh, research through the internet. <laughs> yeah, and so this field research occurred in 2019, so mm-hmm. that, w- that was right before COVID hit, right? Yes, yeah. Right. I so, got lucky. I got right, I have a back right in time. <laughs> right, so so good. So and how long did you spend there? Um, uh, in total, I want to say I spent just under two months. Two months? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so... Uh, Tell us a little bit more about about your findings there and, and what what that was like to, to be in those communities. It was really eye-opening, Bill. Um, I think, um, as with any sort of research, we have our own assumptions going in, um, and then we're confronted with the reality of what we see and what we experience. Um, and so for me, it was really important to get that perspective. Of course, I wish I had spent even more time in the field. It's something I hope to do in the future. Um, but it was really important to see the day-to-day life of folks that I was um, engaging in conversation and also writing about. Um, you witness both the, I think, extreme levels of poverty, which really is a factor here, um, but also the sort of resiliency of these communities who, at least in one case in Uzbekistan, um, in Samarkand, uh, where you know community had actually built been built as a result of these sorts of tragedies. Um, so I visited a women's shelter in particular that grew out of um, the need uh, for a place for survivors of self-immolation to stay because many had been uh, abandoned by their families. Um, mm. Because it is perceived often as an act of protest, um, many families you know, take personal offense to the act because it puts on display a sort of, um, you know, a otherwise uh, shielded from view issue, uh, right, that with that's happening within the scope of the family, and we can get into that um, in some detail. I think it's important to... But so this community had actually grown out of self-immolation. And for me, it would have been really hard to conceive, I think, from far away um, how how that had taken place and, and, you know, how it had actually managed to change the lives of those who'd survived. Um, In a lot of cases elsewhere where these sorts of communities have not formed, um, women and girls live very difficult lives in the aftermath if they do survive. Um, And in this case, I saw many who'd been empowered um, who'd found sort of a community and a sisterhood and who were now sort of mm. exercising a different form of agency over their lives. Um, and these were women in Uzbekistan themselves who developed this this women's shelter and 
it, this wasn't some outside NGO coming in and no, establishing no. this. It was, it, yeah. was, it was a grassroots kind of... Very much a grassroots initiative. In, in this case, it was actually one burn surgeon um, in Samarkand who'd been working, I believe, since uh, early 1970s. And she had actually met so many patients um, who'd been abandoned by their families mm-hmm. um, as a result of, of what had happened that uh, she initially just opened her own family home's doors um, to women in need. And so she let them stay with her um, as much as she could. Uh, and then by 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, she was able to get her home registered as an NGO and sort of expand the practice. Um, she did seek outside funding at various points. Um, a couple local but also international NGOs help to fund, but so does the local community. Um, her little mahalla, or sort of uh, self-administered community, very much uh, assists with the initiative and supports it, which yeah, is great. Yeah, what's a mahalla? It's a community organization. Um, think of it as a sort of self-governing municipality, almost, at a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Does it have official status with governmental status? It does now. Um, yeah. It didn't used to in the case of Uzbekistan. It didn't used to in a lot of places, actually. Right. Um, they're uh, usually just kinship, grown out of kinship networks or family settlements. Mm-hmm. Um, but and these uh, are traditional groupings that people developed. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, but as the state, of course, grows in the course of the 20th century, these sorts of um, communities become institutionalized. In the case of Uzbekistan, they're quite deeply institutionalized now, so they are actually answerable to the president. Um, but there's a lot of politics there, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So, so tell us a little more about what you found about the reasons why these women uh, choose this, th- this action. Uh, what, 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 what is behind that? So I found that there was, say, a constellation of issues, okay, all of which were very much related to what I end up calling gendered frontiers of the political, which is just a way of saying that there are issues that disproportionately affect women as opposed to men, at least in these contexts. Um, These were issues like whether or not one had agency over Uh, whether you would partake in a polygamous marriage, um, whether or not you would pursue school um, and work outside of the home, uh, whether or not, um, you know, you were able to leave a marriage and obtain custody over your children or be even considered for custody, um, as well as whether or not you, you know, had the right to be free of violence, uh, domestic violence, gender-based violence, um, both in the home but also in the larger community. And and so... Why? Why would women think self-immolation was a was a was a solution or a resp- appropriate response to those concerns? Right. Um, that's a complicated question. Um, R- right. Of course, it involves a whole lot of different motivations and things that are very hard to sort of ascertain. But um, I think there's a sort of overarching sense that, uh, and reality. I don't want to just say it's a subjective sense. There's an objective reality, which is that. The state is, in a lot of cases, um, impervious to women's claims, right? It's, it's very resistant to allow for mechanisms that would allow for different forms of recourse. So um, in the case of Iran and Afghanistan, the laws are just disproportionately stacked in men's favor. Um, the law is not your friend. In the case of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, um, we don't have, say, a de jure form of gender apartheid at the level of the law. 
but we do have a de facto system of gender apartheid. And what I mean by that is that um, oftentimes uh, cases just simply won't be considered um, and, you know, the police will simply not respond or respond in such a way that's not favorable to the woman. And so the reality is, is that other forms of recourse don't usually work in their favor. This is also a classed issue. If one has more means, if one lives in an urban city center, there are more um, forms of recourse available to, the, to, to you. Um, but in an impoverished, say, rural community, um, that situation looks really different. Um, and the means of accessing, say, a lawyer or someone who can read um, into customary laws what they need to read or convince the appropriate um, political figures of what they need to convince is rather difficult. Um, and so the reality is, is there's not much room for them to leverage other other mediums. Um, and unfortunately, that leads to a lot of self-destructive violence. And how did that work out uh, precisely in some of the cases you studied mm. uh, in, in your doing your interviews with the survivors? I can give you one example. Um, in the case of Uzbekistan, uh, a woman um, who I, <laughs> I've ascribed names, of course, to maintain anonymity, um, but uh, Nargisa is what I call her. Um, and she actually was in a uh, marriage that had a lot of domestic violence. Um, she initially was, a, you know, willing participant. She got married because she wanted to. Um, and unfortunately, as time went on, um, the domestic violence grew sort of overwhelming and unbearable. Um, and she tried in various ways to escape. Uh, what I mean by this is she initially tried to obtain a divorce um, through the customary authorities. Uh, she wasn't married in a civil or a civilly registered marriage. She was married by way of customary authorities, which is very common, um, sort of a legacy of the Soviet Union and a parallel world um, that's been established in a lot of places. Um, and when that divorce was denied, um, she tried a couple other things. She tried to return to her paternal family, which is something that a lot of women do when faced with instances of domestic violence, but her family unfortunately refused to take her back for various reasons. Um, and similarly, she tried to run away. Um, also a very um, common way in which uh, women try to deal with such circumstances, right, is to just simply physically flee. Um, each time that she fled, uh, there was actually members of the community, so the local mahalla, that would find her, whether by way of her child or another means, and would physically return her, you know, sort of like a police force would. Um, right, so this is that that local community organization is really exercising kind of police power, basically. Exactly. Catching this person and sending them back to their family. Yeah, yeah they're enforcing a social order, which is what I, I very much argue in the course of the dissertation, is that, mm. you know, these are political institutions, as is the family, mm -hmm. um, and ultimately as is the body, I think. Um, we just mm -hmm. have to think of it a little bit differently than we have traditionally in political mm -hmm. theory. And and so these traditional institutions t tend to be biased against women in, in the situation like the, the young woman you're talking about here, right? Yeah, it's uh, unevis unevenly biased, let's say. You know, some mahalas will be... Um, will have a different way of relating uh, in terms of gender, um, but predominantly uh, they are biased towards uh, men. And the reason for this is a historical one, right? Um, it's not just that there's an innate, uh, you know, patriarchal um, mindset um, that's been shaped, I think, in the course of 20th century um, political history, maybe even further back, um, where, you know, the mahalla really played a role both 
in uh, shielding communities from the power of the state, say under the Soviet Union, um, but also uh, became a way in which local mm. communities sort of armed themselves and defended themselves against the state, and that creates itself its own gendered dynamic. Right, and so that so that these these entities uh, felt that they, they have an obligation to maintain kind of social order, and they would interpret that in a way that often trapped these young women in this these horrible situations. Exactly, and feeling trapped, they. They they become desperate basically, and then and then uh, and so so again let me (laughs) own down here. I'm I'm, precisely why do they pick this action though? That's what I want to. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I think this action has a history, right? Um, These communities are not um, so isolated that they don't you know hear stories of um, other similar actions, whether they're political or received politically or or not. Unfortunately, it's become a prevalent uh, mode of claims making. So a lot of instances um, see women and girls threaten to self-immolate without actually doing so. And in some cases, that might lead to some sort of, you know, wiggle room in terms of um, opening up a space for dialogue or opening up a space for some sort of change, right? Um, Unfortunately, in more stubborn instances and instances where coercive and controlling violence is very much at play, um, that doesn't end up being the case, and that's often when women ultimately undertake the act. Um, why self-immolation? I think the, the form tells us a lot, right? Uh, often these are women suffering in the privacy of their homes, um, very secluded and isolated from their communities, even though their communities play a part in maintaining this sort of police power that uh, encircles them. And so it's a form that gives, I think, a voice. Um, often it's carried out in public, so they'll find themselves going up to the rooftop or in the, into a backyard or an adjacent courtyard. And I think here that does a lot of um, the work of telling us you know, what it's trying to do in the sense that there's an attempt to publicize this protest and attempt to bring light to the fact um, that they've been suffering in silence um, and in ways that were hidden from the public. Um, in a way, it's a sort of strategy for denying impunity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where it's otherwise pervasive. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so, what what kind of community response occurs mm-hmm. as a as a result of this? Uh, I'm sure it's varied, but but what did you find in terms of the way communities responded to an incident like this? I think the responses are very, um, very varied. In in the case of Uzbekistan, we said you know one shelter ended up. Uh, coming into being, um, which has been rather successful and helpful. We see like a lessening of the rates um, in proportion to the exit options available for women. And and, and this shelter also offers refuge to women before they self-immolate as well, right? Yes, now the initiative has grown. So women women become aware of this shelter, perhaps through uh, stories about self-immolated women, right? Yes. And, And then they learn that, well, here's a place they can go so that they don't have to do that. Right? Exactly, exactly. Word gets around, and that ends up actually, um, you know, relieving uh, a lot of a lot of situations before they get to the point of self-immolations. Right. Um, in other instances, it's actually rather tragic. Um, I met one survivor who, after self-immolating, um, she was actually hidden by her family. She, I can't even, it's hard to conceive of, but... Um, 
the, doc- the doctors that actually worked on her case told me they didn't know how she survived because for 40 days they kept her hidden in the home, uh, covered in blankets, and eventually realized that she was going to cling to life, and they eventually sought out um, an ambulance and medical assistance. But there's a lot of covering up that happens um, because it implicates the family, it implicates the community, um, it implicates the political authorities. Um, and I think it's precisely because of its political power and its you know, potency as a form of protest that we see these attempts to cover it up and to hide what's going on. And that's why even though I sort of have some figures and rates in terms of what we estimate um, to be the number of self-immolations in these regions, um, we believe them to be much higher, right? Because uh, many cases are brought to hospital as accidental burns. Many cases are never brought to hospital at all. Mm-hmm. And has, has there been a, a response in the state to this? Uh, uh, have women been able to, I mean, through things like the shelter or you also found you, in your research, you also uh, found a lot of social media action. You want to talk a little bit about that? And Sure. Yeah. Um, I think there's been a lot of different responses, whether on the part of the state or social forces. Um, in terms of the state, I'll just quickly mention in Iran, they're, for example, running a pilot project to try to ascertain the reasons for why mm-hmm. the rates are so high. In a lot of cases, these are projects that don't end up going anywhere because the state is ultimately invested in sort of shielding um, the realities from the public. Um, Nonetheless, women's groups um, and various political groups and activists, uh, grassroots activists, have tried to bring light to the issue, and that's where we get a lot of the information. Um, In the case of a recent recent campaign in Uzbekistan uh, called Nemolchi, or Speak Up, um, there's actually a social media forum so that uh, survivors of domestic violence, but also those currently dealing with it, um, can sort of reach out to one another anonymously online, both to share experiences, but also to sort of, um, you know, crowdsource ways of of dealing with the situation, given the sort of restricted means, um, uh, sharing what worked for one person might help another and so they find this sort of community online um it's a politicized community so the states made a couple attempts to shut it down and the organizations have pushed back and various sort of other ngos at an international level have had to get involved to try to speak up on their behalf Um, but ultimately these are really great um, campaigns that allow for sort of less physically mediated strategies right Mm -hmm. And do you think these strategies might have uh, an impact on in these in these societies and in these countries? Uh, Absolutely, um, consciousness raising. I think we know is the key to right. um, you know social change, political change, um, and I think that that's what they primarily allow for is you know to break that isolation, to know that you're not alone. Um, the personal is very much political in this instance. It's a systemic issue. Um, and I think breaking that sort of um, barrier of isolation allows for a lot of change. Um, it also allows for, you know, young men and boys to recognize their own experiences, perhaps as domestic violence. Um, often we think it's an issue that just affects women and girls. Well, you know, the family has a lot of members and um, communities have various members. And so uh, it just allows people to come to consciousness, I think, about their own experiences in ways that aren't um, necessarily psychopathologized or making them feel like it's all their fault. Right. And 
Have there been steps taken to change laws as a result of uh, uh, all this activity? Or Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in the case of Uzbekistan, there's actually a 2019 law um, that was introduced for the first time in Uzbekistan's modern history. Uh, there's, of course, problems with this law. It doesn't actually outlaw domestic violence. It's more geared towards sort of harassment and um, and you know, street stalking, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of limitations there and, of course, a lot of room for growth. But incremental changes. Um, in the case of Iran, um, there have been various groups pushing for quite some time now to actually see laws on the books as it regards domestic violence, but also to change discriminatory laws against uh, women and girls, that disproportionately stack, you know, the family mm. unit in favor of their male guardians. And unfortunately, in that case, you know, the judiciary is stubborn. It's run um, by a very uh, narrow elite class of clerics, and they are unwilling to, they've vetoed every bill that's right. passed through the legislature. So hasn't been possible right. yet. So, uh, well, that's almost a segue into talking about uh, <laughs> contemporary issues in Iran. But before we go there, uh, I just want to give you a chance to, to, to sum up a bit, you know, your overall conclusions as a result of your study. What, what, where did you come down? What, what did you find? What did you, what did you conclude about all of this uh, in your dissertation? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so, you know, it's nice to think about one's dissertation after a while and, and try to synthesize. In, in this case, I, um, I think it complicates our general sort of assumptions, both around suicide and self-destructive violence, but also around political protest. Um, I'd like to see us sort of push the boundaries there a little bit more because I think it's necessary. Um, I think we understand... Um, post-Durkheim, but also post-David Hume, you know, we either understand suicide as a sociological phenomenon or we understand it as a personal one to do with the personal free will. Um, we rarely think about it in political terms um, and its political implications. So that's something uh, I think is the sort of takeaway from the project. Similarly, I think we need to think about the body and the home as political institutions. And despite years of feminist political theory, I think... Um, mainstream political theory has been sort of resistant to think about those questions more deeply um, and also change the way I think we think about police power. You know, we have a, a liberal conception that predominates, which is all about enforcing laws. And of course, that's a part of the picture. Um, but a more sort of critically oriented conception of police power would see these institutions like the family and the community, um, as well as the state and its laws, but it's also it's sort of unequal application of the law as it regards various gendered or racialized persons and bodies um, to be itself a form of enforcing a social order. Um, and so that's something that I'm more recently starting to grapple with and think about uh, more thoroughly, um, both in relation to my work in the dissertation, but also looking forward. Mm -hmm. Well, since you brought it up, <laughs> before we move to talking about Iran, what are your future research plans? Where do you want to go with this now? Uh, do you think your dissertation will become a book? Do you <laughs> want to do that or do you want, or do you have other uh, research that you want to pursue instead? And yeah, so I'm, I'm very much in the early stages of, of putting together a book project. Um, I'm, I want to uh, both return to the field and sort of continue mm. to do interviews, but also, um, you know, write and build more connections between these sort of events that I studied in my dissertation and the events that we're seeing now in Iran. Um, 
I think there's a through line, a very clear one, at least in my mind, between the recourse to the body in the case of self-immolation and the burning of the hijab in the streets. Um, and the reason for this is, is it all comes back to, you know, the body and self-determination and um, what forms and regimes of police power are, you know, um, constraining us at that level. Let's follow that through line. <laughs> uh, so the, the current protests in, in Iran. Of course, there's been uh, protests uh, by, by women against the regime that, that go back uh, a very long time. But but the most recent one in September, there was this young woman, uh, Masa Amini, yes. uh, if I pronounce that correctly, uh, who was uh, picked up by the, the, uh, the uh, what do they call them? The guidance patrol. Gui- guidance patrol yeah. uh, for uh, supposedly not having her headscarf on correctly, right? And ended up dying in police custody and that inaugurated what's now several months of ongoing protests that that, that I believe are still continuing in, in, in Iran and uh, so so let uh, explicate a little more this through line between self-immolation and and hijab wearing and 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 what, what what's going on there in that in Iran mm. So, yes, so the protests started on September 16th um, with the news that arrived that uh, Gina Massa Amini, I'll just include also her Kurdish name, which legally Mm -hmm. she's denied in Iran, unfortunately, as a result of the sort of marginalization of ethnic minorities um, that's pervasive. Uh, She was arrested on the 13th. Um, We did hear news that she passed on the 16th, and almost immediately people gathered outside of the hospital protesting that very evening, and they continued through to her funeral and um, really gained steam from there. Um, The through line that I understand is that here we have a young woman, you know, um, very much following the rules, uh, living as an ordinary person, visiting her brother in the capital, um, and yet an inch of her hair you know, falling out from beneath her headscarf was enough to have her detained um, and then treated in such a brutal fashion. Um, And of course, that's a public version. We get to see it because the vans drive up on the street and pick women up um, like they did with Gina. Uh, But in the case of self-immolation, it's just hidden from view. Right. Um, there, there are also women who are being apprehended, whether on the relation, uh, on the basis of their um, dress or comportment, general being in the world, and who aren't really allowed any breathing room. Right. Um, and they're both being asked to fit in a very specific place, a very narrow, determined place, um, and stepping anywhere outside of that really enforced social order is going to get you in a lot of trouble. Um, So I think there's parallels between the form of state violence we saw enacted against Gina Massa Amini and also the forms of what we call depoliticized violence um, Mm. at the level of the family, which I think is very much political. Um, And so that parallel for me is an important one. And in a way, self-immolation sort of prefigures what we're seeing out on the streets. It's just these are women who find themselves in very different circumstances where they don't get to lead those sorts of public lives. Um, So I think there's a, in my mind, it's a very... Um, clear connection, uh, but it's one, of course, that I have to do the work of explicating. And in the protests, I I know that I they noticed that the the women involved in those protests not only did they burn their hijabs, they also flaunt their hair. <laughs> uh, I remember one picture of a woman standing on a car, I believe, and in a protest and throwing her hair up and <laughs> and uh, I think saying something like, uh, uh, "We 
to the authorities, here's my hair, what are you going to do about it? Yes, yeah. yeah, because hair is subversive. You know, that's the level to which the body's been, the female body has been politicized, yeah. right? Is that just a little bit of hair in and of itself is politically subversive. And of course, we have women who wear the headscarf um, quite, uh, you know, proudly also burning the hijab because for them it's become a symbol of the extent to which women's bodies have been politicized and policed by the dominant order. Yeah. There was a there was an outflowing of, of support. Were you surprised by the, the extent to which the Iranian public seemed to uh, respond to this? Uh, one might think that in a uh, society, that the, we all have a perception in, in, in the United States of Iran as a kind of very traditional mm-hmm. society. You might expect that, you know, the public at large would would uh, be dismissive of, you know, a young woman who broke the rules. <laughs> but that... that for many Iranians, that wasn't the case. How do you account for that? That's an excellent question. So in this case, I actually think, you know, what's interesting about Gina's story is that she didn't break any rules, at least not consciously. So, so she wasn't looking to protest. At least we don't. That's not the sort of news we have of the situation. It just so happened that, you know, her uh, headscarf had slipped back. And that's very common. Some women and girls do actively protest. They pull them back intentionally. You know, they wear tight-fitting jackets and all that um, to actively go against the rules. But in this case, you had a young woman so full of, uh, you know, vibrant dreams and future ambitions. And yet um, the state took it upon itself to just exact this really brutal form of violence. Um, And I think for a lot of Iranians, what's different this time Um, whether they're women living in a gender apartheid state or ethnic and religious minorities living in a rather Shia and farce-dominated sort of political apparatus. Um, She came to symbolize and sort of embody, like the violence that was enacted on her came to symbolize and embody the sort of violence that all these various constituencies and communities have been dealing with at the hands of the state for some time. Um, I think everyone could see themselves in Gina a little bit. um, And that in and of itself, I think, galvanized a lot of popular support. Um, And of course, you know, the reality is, is that Iran is a very young country. 65% of the country is born after the revolution, under the age of 35. And so if there is, you know, an element of traditionalism that exists, um, I think it's a generational Thing. And the younger generation has, you know, grown up under the Islamic Republic and has very much, um, you know, I think just grown tired of the um, inability for that political system to accommodate any change. All right. So, so, so the, the, this one incident really is a kind of a spark that that feeds into a lot of resentment that people had about a lot of things that the regime does, and so so that sort of galvanize the protests. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the regime, of course, has cracked down pretty mm-hmm. harshly. It's executed people. It's arrested, what, uh, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, and it's uh, executed uh, people claiming they were leaders of of this. Uh, how effective has that crackdown been? What's what's the, the status of things uh, right about now, several months after... Uh, um, Ms. Amini's death. Yeah, we've witnessed a pretty brutal crackdown, as you said. Um, at the, so far, there have been at least four hangings of uh, young protesters. 
um, directly charged with, you know, political crimes as a result of their involvement um, in peaceful protests. And they were, of course, denied any type of trial, uh, lawyer, any due process, um, and in often cases their sort of um, theatrical court proceedings took place in the course of minutes, right, um, and only months after being arrested um, in uh, sort of brutal ways. Of course, on the streets, we've also seen upwards of 500 uh, protesters killed, uh, including 60 children, um, and as you said, tens of thousands uh, believed to have been arrested. The estimates vary, um, but most recently the government came out and actually uh, admitted to tens of thousands being arrested um, in conjunction with the protests. Um, there's, of course, an element of fear, but I think in this case, actually, what we're witnessing and what's particularly unique about the circumstances in a lot of ways, fear is dissipating. So the intention that the government has here is to sort of terrify everyone out of, you know, continuing with their grievances. And terror is meant to sort of, you know, create a, an atmosphere of fear. What's happening is I think the population is actually more mortified and horrified by what they're seeing. And in this case, you know, those, those states differ. Um, when you're horrified by something, it's sort of coming from a place of witnessing something and seeing it as an injustice um, and seeing it as, you know, a source of righteous rage even. I think the populace is angry. I think so fear has given way to anger. Um, and that's of course a political affect or emotion. Um, and I think we're going to see more protests. Of course, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't foresee mm -hmm. where things might go. But they've continued certainly in Sistan, Baluchistan province, in Zahedan, the capital. Um, and there, of course, protesters were met with the most brutal forms of violence as they were in Kurdistan province. Um, actually, there was a day uh, that's now referred to as Bloody Friday. Uh, in Zahedan, in Sistan, Baluchistan, which is home to an ethnic minority Baluch population, um, very much marginalized by the current system. And um, there, in the course of one day, uh, there was a peaceful protest following a Friday prayer at the mosque. And unfortunately, we have video, fortunately, actually, we have video recordings of the levels of state repression. So the security forces unleashed um, indiscriminate fire into the crowds, uh, children, adults, and the like. Uh, I believe that 82 people were killed in a day, um, children as well. The hospitals were overrun. You know, there was blood shortages. Uh, the, just, the scenes were really graphic and, and, and gruesome. Uh, and yet, faced with that level of brutality, it's exactly in those regions where we see people still coming out on the streets en masse, uh, defiant as ever, very much continuing to press their claims. What about in the capital in Tehran? What's, mm. what's, what's been happening there recently? So actually as recently as yesterday, um, I think there was 13 cities where we saw protests continue. So mm -hmm. certainly the scale has um, you know, shrunk a little bit. Um, there is reasons for that. Uh, but there were at least uh, in the surroundings of Tehran, whether it's in Arak, in Kerman, but also in various pockets in Tehran, um, we see continued protests and youth gathering in the streets predominantly at night. Um, but that's been the case for most of the of the time now since the protests began. Yeah, but the institutions of repression have, have kept kept together, though, right? There's no sign that anybody in the military, the security services, are are 
are d- moving away from the regime or anything like that, right? That's a difficult question because yeah. it's hard to tell. Um, certainly there's been some infighting. We have news of some infighting at various levels, um, especially with the inner circles. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions about who's going to take over after Khamenei. He's very old mm-hmm. um, and in not good health. Uh, and so there's a lot of questions as to who will se- secede, or sorry, who will take over once he's gone. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's in and of itself led to a lot of infighting. Uh, and there have been, you know, some interesting attempts at concessions on the part of the government. I think half-hearted concessions, they're not uh, genuine in any way, but they speak to, I think, the system being challenged in a radical way. Um, there's conceivably, in my mind, no instance in which, you know, a hardliner like Raisi, who's very much part of that core um, you know, ruling elite, there's no way he would have... uh, He's the current president. He's the current president, yes, of course, but he's been on the judiciary for some time, so he's Mm -hmm. part of that faction that has a lot of control over the um, institutions of the state. And, yeah, there's no way that um, they would even acknowledge these protests, let alone, you know, try to claim that they're offering amnesty Mm -hmm. to protesters, which was the most recent absurd sort of uh, line we read in the propaganda um, of state media. Mm -hmm. So... To what extent would you think the regime is, in fact, threatened by these actions? Is this, uh, you, you think that the, the, this could persist, that the, the regime could, in fact, be threatened by, by this protest movement? Or is it going to be died out eventually? So my honest sense, of course, I, there's no way of telling for sure. I'm purely speculating here. Right. Um, That's okay. We, <laughs> we sometimes speculate in political science. <laughs> uh, it's less common in political theory, I think. But yes, mm-hmm. um, in this case, honestly, the way I sense the sort of public reaction is that they are determined to see answers, right? They, they want to... N- they want their um, loved ones freed from prison. They want to see change on substantive issues. And I don't think that that demand is going to quiet down anytime soon. Um, it's just a question, I think, of strategy, timing. You know, the events in 1979 that gave us this current theocratic form of government, um, they didn't happen overnight. Uh, mm-hmm. They weren't bloodless. Um, they took upwards of, depending on who you ask, you know, 18 months to two years um, and similarly, the Shah's government, you know, responded to student protests with a virulent cramped, clampdown, um, killed upwards of 500 students in, in a day, you know. Um, there was a lot of violence there as well, and yet the protests persisted in various ways. They would quiet down for a week or two and then reemerge on a different university campus, what have you. Um, what's really unique about the current moment is that Um, similar to 1979, we're actually seeing a lot of solidarity across like a sort of intersectional contingent of the population. So it's not just women, it's not just teenagers, although they are a predominant force. It's workers as well going on various strikes, Um, workers in the oil and gas sector, which of course hits the economy quite um, severely. Also, there was a general strike held for three days. Um, Upwards of 85 cities participated. That's a huge Mm-hmm. Um, scale. Uh, so various forms of action involving various constituencies, of course, ethnic minorities are really leading this fight, whether in Kurdistan or Sistan and Balochistan, and they haven't shown any signs of slowing down. Are, are there any oppositional organizations, though, that, that, that could, in fact, uh, constitute perhaps an alternative regime? Or mm. 
You know, I'm hesitant to sort of uh, give a clear answer to that because the reality is, is that when a political regime like the one we have in place in Iran is as dictatorial as it is, similarly to the lead up to 1979, you know, political parties are banned. Um, And if they do have a presence, it's underground. Um, And so it's a very clandestine uh, reality that I simply don't have access to. Um, And so perhaps there are alternatives forming on the ground there. Um, There are certainly diasporic voices who, you know, uh, want to influence the direction of things. But I think ultimately we have to see what sorts of organizations and parties emerge from the grassroots. Um, And we won't know until there's a political opening um, for them to express themselves without threat or fear of reprisal, um, who those groups are and what their, you know, uh, value systems are, what their political beliefs are. Okay, so it's the foggy crystal ball that (laughs) we always have to deal with. Well, that's very interesting, and I, I think we'll just wind it up right there. Uh, uh, thanks so much, uh, Professor Serrazani, for telling us a little bit about yourself and your research, which is very fascinating, and and bringing us up to date on on the the ongoing uh, situation in Iran. I really appreciate your your coming on Beyond Your Newsfeed today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, we'll have you back sometime. I look forward to it. As the crystal ball uh, clears up a little bit, uh, you can come back and tell us what's happening in Iran. Uh, <laughs> and uh, thanks so much to uh, our student producer, Giovea Harris, who's done a superb job here today and will do a superb job editing this, I'm sure, to make our voices uh, very melodious. Uh, thanks also to the Pro- Providence College Department of Marketing and Communications. Uh, Joe Carr and Chris Judge, who continue to support this podcast. And thanks so much to our listeners. Please tell your friends about Beyond Your Newsfeed.